Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hi, everybody. My name is Drew Horning. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. On today's show, we have Renda Baird, a.k.a. Renda the Roofer. Renda, would you introduce yourself, please? I would love to. Hi, Drew. I did the process in July of 2018, and my life's been on a whirlwind ever since. But yeah, July of 2018. I live in Minnesota. Only Prince... Uh, knew that the revolution would start in Minnesota. And um, yeah, so Renda the Roofer or Rennie the Minnesota Ripple as I, I left Hoffman. Was that your childhood name, Rennie? Yeah, Rennie was my childhood name, yes. Nice. So um, how did that Renda the Roofer name come about? What's the backstory there? I've been working on matching my who and my do since the process. And um, I've always been in uh, sales of some sort. So through a series of events in my 51 jobs that I do for a living, um, I got into basically door-to-door storm chasing. And I would introduce myself as Renda the Roofer. And it sort of caught on. And since then, I have started my own company with the help of many failed things. But it's just the one that's sticking right now. But, you know, it feels really good to um, not be stuck in my own skin, have a title that feels good. And, you know, my mission is to be of service and fill some needs. So, yeah. Nice. So what motivated you, Renda, to to take the process, to sign up for this week-long experience? A dear friend of mine took it probably 10 years um, before I took it. Um, We have a similar background. And then through a series of events, another dear friend of mine uh, went to the process and said, you have to go. And it kind of went from there. Also, um, Jason Eric, who runs the Minnesota group, was actually the gay man taking care of three kids in my white religious hometown. Was that a scandal back then? Yeah. Well, it was, you know, not so much a scandal as a shame message that I listened to and heard for a long time. So can I, can I ask you a question there? Was that a, were those some of the family patterns that you undid unlearned in the process? Some of that religiosity? Yeah, I mean, and um, you know, it's either their way, you know, the Lutheran Church, or it's no one's. And I had a magical childhood um, growing up. So I, when my friend told me about it in 2008, I was like, well, I didn't want to disrespect my parents, or I didn't really have issues with my parents. You know, it was just the rules and regulations of the church. And turns out that you know, it's all connected in some way. You know, since then, I've had magical, magical discussions with my parents, and I'm grateful that they're, you know, still around to do it. So it's been a huge, huge blessing for me. 
And do you still um, occasionally go to the grad groups? Yeah. Um, you know, Jason, Eric, and I are, have become friends, and he does an amazing job with the graduates here and is a real tribute to the process and sending people there and getting, you know, there's a reason why it's, you know, really big in the Midwest, and he's a big reason for that. We do have quite a number of people from Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is the reason why. It's because we have to look at ourselves as well. So if you were to take us to uh, a moment in time in your process, what, what, what do you know about, was there a moment where it clicked or where it came together or where there was a breakdown? Well, everything. And um, well, I mean, I sum this up to lots of people, but I, I went there thinking I was doing it for someone else. But really, I mean, I found myself. Um, I got out of my own way. That's not to say it's easy or it's been easy since then, because, you know, when you talk about reciprocity, it reminds me of balance. And I think um, because of my religious over serving kind of thing, it's like breathing to me, right? When you say you can't breathe, you have to breathe equally in and out. And the universe operates on give, receive, circulate. And I think I was really bad at receiving and over good at giving. And then it just led to resentments and not clear communication and not clear agreements and ego in the way. So my moments at the process were definitely graduation. It was very difficult things, you know, to work through or think that I was blaming someone for something. So you felt like if I call out my mom and dad, if I identify these patterns that I learned from them, then I'm somehow blaming them or making it their fault. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm the t 10 commandments girl. I mean, honor your father and mother. And, you know, I didn't want it to be disrespectful in any way. And, you know, at the same time too, I was, as I found out, mad at them for certain things, you know, then through the end and the graduation, it's like, you know, it's not about them. They did the best they could. And, you know, when do I want to decide to do better? Ah, so what what was originally about them, in fact, has nothing to do with them. And it was more about accountability, responsibility for you. Yeah. So, you know, it really, it's changed everything. So um, you talked a, a, a little bit in previously about this kind of self-care that you learned from the process. And um Earlier, you had mentioned it as a kind of radical self-care. Can you share a little bit about what that means for you? Um, for me, um, uh, my one of my best friends in London, and they always have a fun way of talking about stuff, but um, we're kind of on the same path of, you know, law of attraction stuff. And I was coming to things from a distorted viewpoint of, you know, looking at myself less than or unworthy or different things. And that was coming out of me. And so we coined the term radical self-care. And it's been really powerful uh, to me because it's like, I think you should start end any relationship 
the way you want to start the next one. And that's completely in love and kindness. And, and it starts with myself. And that's been a real, really powerful thing in my life because... What, what does that look like, the self-care in your life? How do you... I mean, because it's a... We know the concept, but what does that look like? It, it could be, you know, for me, um, and, you know, people are very, very... Um, I study Deepak Chopra a lot, and he talks about everyone's busy, but like a dynamic life is, you know, what we all want. And for me, it... When I started doing meditation, I was doing it while I was cleaning and while I was walking around and while, you know, so stillness for me is not easy. I have ADHD and OCD, which I call obsessive caretaking disorder. Um, (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So um, I do things fast and furious. You know, the best things about you are also the worst things about you. Um, And I don't know if I mentioned this, but I went to the improv class. My friend here uh, teaches, um, and it was so close to the Hoffman stuff that, you know, I always loved improv and wanted to be like on stage and presenting. And, you know, my door-to-door sales background felt like I was always on stage and trying to prove myself or, you know, sway someone to my opinion. And, Hoffman and improv has, you know, reminded me that conversations are like ping pong. They have to go back and forth. And it's about the exchanges we make with people. So radical self-care for me has been guitar lessons, scuba diving, motorcycle, not being afraid to be very new at something and not be good at it. And for me, that's, that's what it looks like for me is yoga. I could say I'm terrible at it, but apparently my teachers say that's why it's a practice, not a mirror. You mentioned the improv with Jenny. Is it true that you met her at a Hoffman grad group? Yep. I met her at a grad group and it was so fun because, oh my gosh, I've always wanted to do that. So I immediately signed up and it was you know magical and painful all at once because it was so much like Hoffman, it was almost too much for me, but it was great. So when you say painful, the vulnerability, the transparency, the the exposure of being so open with other people? Not necessarily that, uh, Drew. It, for me, the improv was painful because I felt like I've lived my life doing improv, where it was mostly about me, when what I learned from that class was it's about listening more than listening and making other people look good, feel better, feel like they're heard. And, you know, really what I learned is one word can be more powerful and more pointed than, you know, a 20 minute monologue. Wow. So so in improv, you, got the importance of being present to what the person is saying in order to know what you were, you were going to say. Right. Where, you know, in business, you know, I've been in a lot of self-improvement and things, but you know, back to my family, um, I grew up on a farm. Um, I'm the second oldest of seven kids and, you know, just to get a word in edgewise at dinner, you, you know, you were either funny or loud. (laughs) 
And that's the role I took. You know, I was the second oldest and my older sister was in charge and I was the comic relief sometimes. She, she was loud and you were funny. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, but, you know, magical childhood, um, they were really great to kind of piece it all together. And um, there's things that happened happen during the process. My mom was the basically creative director of the church. So putting on shows was her specialty. And so when you go on the Hoffman process, it you, like all my patterns, like were just smashing me in the face of, you know, listen and don't take over the show and all that stuff, you know? Lots of, lots of transference bouncing around. Yeah. It's just every day, you know, you talk about, you know, what am I thankful for? You know, the, the gratitude and curiosity I have for what's next. You know, everyone talks about with everything going on. I read this article that said that there'll be more technological advances in the next 50 years than there've been in the last 500. So when you talk about a revolution, I'm like so excited about, you know, what's going to happen, what's to come. And um, I'm so appreciative of the awakening that I got at the process that it's just, I, I couldn't be more thankful because I thought it was turning 50, but I think it's all of that. Yes, yeah, sounds. Uh, I mean, that's a quite a stat. In the next fifty years, more than in the previous five hundred. Wow. Yeah, I mean that's magical when you think about it. And there's a lot of people that are going to go through huge changes. You know, right now from their careers to everything. And I mean, I feel like I've had to do that. You know, a few times already. So it's been a nice. Um, thing for me to be able to help other people and kind of encourage them to try things. Um, th- this is a, um, I have a neighborhood, you know, Facebook group, and I'm kind of the known handy person in the neighborhood. And, you know, these moms that are now home with their kids are going, uh, I need someone to do this wall or put this light in, and then I'll go try it yourself. It's great. You know, look it up on YouTube. And more than one of them have come back and said, thank you for that encouragement to try it. I love that, Renda. So rather than take on the project yourself, you woman to woman are suggesting and turning them back towards their own, maybe fledgling emerging skills, their own power. Yeah. You know, the thing that I've had to realize is that in my need, in my desire to serve or help or whatever, you know, I jump in and try and fix everything or do everything. And, and, you know, what I've learned since is that you're just taking their power away and it's more magical to see their light come on than it is for me to diminish theirs with mine. Maybe it's a kind of uh, consultant role you're taking on. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. But back to the reciprocity, it's complete balance and, you know, having really clear agreements. That's the lessons of the process that I get every day. A kind of boundaries and need for clarity around when you do enter into an agreement with someone. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And just the other day I had this interaction with this woman that, you know, could have been considered confrontational. And then 
I would have responded in defensiveness and like, what did I do? And I didn't do this. And I just had to sit down and listen. And then you find out that they had as much stuff going on and, you know, they apologized for being short and it was magical. So I want to go back to your childhood and being raised on a farm. Fewer and fewer people can say that in our country. What what was it like for you? What's it like to be raised on a farm? Well, um, if I could start a Hoffman program for kids, uh, it would be on a farm somewhere in in Minnesota because I, I feel like I was gifted, you know, experiences of, you know, hands-on problem-solving stuff every day. I really did have a magical childhood. My dad was outside. He was a farmer. My mom was inside doing everything. You know, we would work hard and then go to the lake in the afternoon. And then our cabin was 10 minutes from our house. And, you know, because my dad could only come over in the evenings after. But there aren't things that give kids that experience anymore. Be a plumber and a farm animal watcher and uh, just everything. What was, what was your job as the second oldest? What did you, what did you end up doing? Well, everything is the answer. You know, I have five sisters and one brother. So as the second oldest, there was basically only one other. There was two of us that liked to do outside and inside stuff. And then one of my sisters who happens to be a princess, she'll know who she is. She said she was allergic to hay, so she didn't really have to do anything. This is a funny story. So just the other day we were, I was at my mom's and helping her with stuff. And my, you know, I was there all morning cleaning and doing all this stuff. And then I went outside to do a bunch of stuff outside. And my brother comes in and I hear him and he goes, mom, you should have your girls doing that. And I just went crazy. I go, listen, it's time for change. You do the dishes. (laughs) What I got to do is everything from driving the trucks to taking care of animals. And if you get your kids a chance to do anything like that, it's it's amazing. I did hear this uh, report a couple months ago about what makes a good lawyer. And it, it was on revisionist history. And, and one of the things they thought was, of course, for law firms to hire uh, graduates from the top law schools. And what they found was, the, this person who owns a company who did research, found out that, in fact, that has no bearing on the success of them as lawyers But one of the things that does have bearing positively is blue-collar work, farm labor, for example, manufacturing work. So that is, to your point, the power of being raised where you had to get up early and and roll up your sleeves and really do do that kind of physical manual labor. Yeah. As my dad would say, you don't really get to ask yourself if, if you want to go to work. The animals have to be milked. They have to be taken care of. Whatever you do, you have something to do, whether it's raining or whatever. So, I mean, I love, if you want to know who the good workers are, in the Midwest, it's like if you say you grew up on a farm, you're instantly hired. All in with the the farm workers, the farm kids. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I've had many companies, all I have to do is go, you know, I was on a farm and they're like, oh, I can tell. Or In fact, I've been trying to figure out a way to, duplicate that training somehow in a training program somehow. Yeah. So 
I want to um, ask you about your adopted son mm. and what that experience has been like for you. As a white woman, it's really with everything in Minneapolis right now. I mean, my supplier is one block off Lake Street, right next to the third precinct. My, I have a house in the area. Um, my roofers. Every day I listen to people say, you know, you're Mexican roofers, and I have to say they're from Texas. And when I think of my son and the things that he's taught me, um, I call it gifted, but uh, he's amazing. And just having the experiences of bringing him to situations where, you know, it's mostly white or mostly not looking like him. And and where is he? What's his his birth parents were from Nicaragua. So everyone sees him and they're like, oh, where are you from? And I go, New Jersey. He's American. So it's an education process every day. And I think people don't mean to be offensive. And I think that m- many people would say that my mom, for the longest time, she would introduce him as her adopted grandchild. And I'm like, mom, you don't have to say that like every time. There's one particular story I brought Lincoln to a quinceanera and I, we walked in and the whole building, you know, 300 people were all brown. So quinceanera is a coming of age ceremony for women. Yes. Uh, so he walks in and he's like, looks at me like, are you going to be okay? And it was like the first time I saw this light in his eyes that was just, you know, amazing. So I feel a real responsibility as, you know, a roofing company owner, uh, Hoffman talks about my responsibility with my light, and that's a real passion for me right now. And talk, you know, immigration and all the things around race right now. So, what 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 are you what are you learning in the raising of a, a brown son in times like these? What's the impact on you? The impact is is that you have to commit to being not perfect or not saying all the right things. And, you know, I think the most powerful thing that I've learned to say to Lincoln is, you know, what do you think? To ask questions. Yeah. I mean, and it's the same things, you know, that I need to do with adults, but you know, it's, it's that the other thing I would be remiss if I didn't mention is that my ex and I, we had a business together and I think, the thing that I've learned the most about separated parenting is it can be magical. It doesn't have to be bad. At first I was heartbroken because passing them back and forth. My family had just accepted me sort of as normal or, you know, they accepted that I had a brown adopted child and I just felt like the whole thing crumbled. And I guess my point is the things you think are not good or the worst thing that could happen sometimes end up being the best things ever. Mm, and for for him during this time, how old is he again? Lincoln just turned 11. 11. So what what is he noticing? What's what's happening for him given much of this learning, uh, pain, trauma is is in in your backyard right there. Yeah. What I will say is just opportunity for great, great conversation. 
we're very blessed to be in very privileged circles of communication and uh, racial awareness and, you know, real action to, you know, getting things done. And I think like everyone, you know, I've had to deal with a lot of grief around the situation. And before I went through the process, I sort of didn't acknowledge that I even had feelings. Hmm. Much less grief. Yeah, much less grief. I mean, come on. I could do humor. I could do lighthearted. I could do, you know, get to work. But it wasn't something I gifted myself very often to acknowledge that I had feelings. And in fact, I remember that a day in the process and I was like, oh my gosh, I have feelings. <laughs> so it's really a great opportunity for, you know, lots and lots of good conversation. Something around that, like a religious background, you try and serve a lot of people. And what I noticed is, um, you know, I took Lincoln down Lake Street and 38th in Chicago and stood where the incident happened. And, you know, I feel so honored to be right at the epicenter of it that you can't help but act differently and speak up when you need to and represent different things. And I, and I, for one, can't be more excited about the opportunities. There is a lot of change born out of that loss and death and trauma. And um, one gets the understanding that without um, video and cell phones and the, the, the proof of it, that change might not have or be coming as quickly as it is. So right. it's, a good, it's a good thing that people are recording, pressing record. Thank you for saying that. Um, it's not the first time racism and things like that is happening. It's the first time it's all being filmed. You know, I was born in 1968, happily 51 years old. And Lincoln and I talk about it all the time. I, I will spend my last breaths trying to have a new thing to fight for as someone that's in gay relationships, you know, having to fight for that. Another thing that Hoffman taught me was that, you know, I don't have to fight for some things anymore that I, they're just my given right to have and that, and you know, the rest of the world will follow. But I think, you know, because of my circumstances, it, it makes me who I am, but it's also, you know, the trials that I ha have had have made me who I am. And, and, you know, I'm grateful for every single one of them, including interactions with people that were very difficult, that seemed like they were bad. But I think those people push you to this new level of understanding, whatever that might be. Brenda, I am grateful for our conversation today. Thank you very much. Yeah. So me too. And, you know, thanks for the opportunity to tell my story and show some appreciation for Hoffman. And I, I hope that graduates realize that shining their light is, you know, what we were here to do. to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. 
Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to HoffmanInstitute.org.